And the reason that, that virtual events struggled pre-COVID was this kind of um, cannibalization fear that if I do anything there, then how am I going to get the people through the door? Because they're the ones that are keeping my event alive. But I think we've seen that there isn't necessarily that happening. And actually, rather than looking at it as two things that are competing with each other, think of it, you've, you've got a physical event and how do you enhance it? How do you do more? How do you add an audience that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to access by adding in a virtual component. And if you see it as you know, two parts that together are, are much stronger than one on their own, then, then you stop worrying about the cannibalization issue. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to Mike Piddick from Glisser. Glisser is a virtual events platform. Mike got dealt an awful hand with COVID. His original platform, a year ago, his platform would have been about how to drive interactivity in a physical meeting. And physical meetings went to zero. So now Glissa is a hybrid events platform. So it's how do you run an amazing virtual event? How do you make a virtual event as good as it can be? And in a world which starts to become hybrid or blended in the future, how could you take some in-person visitors to an event and blend them seamlessly with some people who are coming in uh, virtually? Um, so we talk about that. We talk about office, what will happen, Mike's view about what will happen in the office, how, how he's got one vision for the UK and one vision for the US. And one of the things that actually that we speak about is one of the things that uh, they've been able to make work is how to drive sponsorship. Because I, I asked him the question, why aren't people just on Zoom? But you couldn't really ask somebody to sponsor your Zoom meetings. And so the platform helps people do maybe a, uh, a pre-roll or advertising or sponsorship. And he says, look, most of the work they get asked to do is about making the user experience bespoke to fit with the organization or the sponsors. So great episode to listen to if you're a marketeer or a CEO and thinking the events we used to attend, the events we used to run all went away. And how could you do something much, much better than just using Zoom for your next meeting or even training? Because training is an internal event. So how could you run amazing, interactive, responsive, virtual training for your organization so that as the world goes back to work, in fact, you might even feel that virtual training is better than in-person training. A great conversation with Mike. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hi, I'm Mike Piddock. I'm the founder of Glissa, and we are a virtual and hybrid uh, events platform. 
And so a year ago, uh, a virtual events platform, was that, were you trying to persuade people that they didn't need to meet face to face? Well, actually, for the for the five years up till let's call it COVID, um, we were an audience engagement technology for physical events. Uh, we had we had some customers that were running virtual and, and hybrid events, so we 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 built that technology, but it was it was a fraction of our core business. So this time last year, I probably would have described ourselves slightly differently, but but in this new landscape, um, you have to adapt, you have to pivot, and um, you know this is this is where we're playing now, and this is where we see the future being. And have you been able to deliver the benefits for clients from virtual events? Yeah, I think I think the important thing to recognize is that um, you've got to go back to why people are running events in the first place, whether they're virtual, hybrid, in person. Um, and usually I think they, they kind of fall into various camps, whether that's generating business or building a brand or just simply teaching people stuff. A lot of events are actually like large meetings and training sessions. And so, you know, if you go back to those objectives, often you can find that actually for those clients, you can still deliver that to, without people being there in person. Um, there's, there's definitely some bits that are lost, some elements that you, you, you can't recreate virtually. Um, but, you know, essentially many events, the, the core objective of that event can still be delivered virtually. So what bit can't be replicated? I think the hardest bit to replicate is the, um, the networking component, the idea of that serendipity that you meet somebody um, that you weren't expecting to and you connect with them on a level um, that's not just about business but about personalities, it's about the, the, kind of, uh, the personal level. And I think that is hard to recreate um, and that's the piece that I think a lot of companies are looking at, figuring out and trying to improve. And do you mean you're standing in the queue getting a cup of tea and you randomly talk to the person next to you and then you think uh, and, and you just feel you like you want to keep talking to them and screw the rest of the meeting? I think I think it's about you know if you get, if you if I go to a, a, a let's call them physical events if I go to a physical event you know I might be there looking to sell to people and I might be looking for certain names or logos to try and uh, try and connect with and you've often got a, a booth and a stand to try and bring them over to you but but very often you can meet people you know in the bar after the event and just be chatting to the person who happens to be standing next to you at the bar and they might not necessarily be that core connection that you were looking for. But you strike up a strike up a chat, and they happen to know somebody else who's at the show, and they want to make an introduction for you. So that that kind of thing that just happens organically, that's that's challenging to recreate. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we often people get the best results from something that happened when it, they didn't really mean it to. Um, they kind of flow it back and go, "Oh, it was at that event we first met, and since then we've been, been we've been doing a lot of business." So I think that that serendipity piece is the hardest, definitely. But but so much of an event goes beyond that that actually you've got to try and recreate the bits that are easy to recreate first and then start plugging in that, those extra pieces. And what you, you mentioned training. So what do you have a, in your head a sort of a list of things that people, event types that you, that you work with clients to deliver? Because again, I'm just thinking if people are listening to this, when they think event, they might not think training. Yeah, so so uh, th- that kind of list that I went through. So I broadly look at four objective types. So I talk about revenue. So I call it the four R's of event objectives. So I'm a marketer by trade. So we always got taught the four P's. Well, we have the four R's. So the, f- the first R is revenue. So you're running an event to try and generate revenue. That's to sell to people, or perhaps you're running an event with lots of sponsors and you generate revenue from that sponsorship. So 
revenue. Uh, the second is relationships, so that networking piece. You know, you're there to bring people together to connect them. You're building relationships. The third, I call it reputation, which is brand. You know, you often run an event just to show how big you are to to create this sense of excitement, and let's say around a product launch or something like that. If you're launching into a new market, and then finally, I call it recall, which is kind of my way of shoehorning in knowledge, training, uh, communication. So even communication internally to staff is a common event that happens all of the time perhaps run by an HR team or a comms team. Um, and that's about knowledge sharing. It's about passing on the mission for the company for the next year or why they're changing the brand or the charity that they happen to be supporting this year. So broadly, there are four things you're trying to achieve from an event. And most events have one or more of those things in different weightings that, that basically is the, is the event objective. And so we would go back to the objective rather than, you know, what's the event? We'd say, what are you trying to achieve from the event? And, and I mean, thinking about training in particular, I was thinking uh, I was thinking about sales training just as an example. You know, you deliver that in person. So often that event doesn't get captured in any way, which allows people to either go back and look at it again or or new, uh, the, the somebody starts the day after the training event happened or wasn't able to make it and they miss out entirely. And I guess deliver that virtually on a platform changes the way it gets delivered and gives you an asset. Yeah, I, th- I think I think training is actually one of the easiest things to recreate virtually and one of the ones that's been done most successfully. And we've got a host of clients that were looking to move all of their training online prior to COVID anyway, and it just happens to have sped that up. Because if you think about it, you know, it's very often you know, content-driven. There's a requirement to analyze whether people are present, whether they're paying attention, whether they get, you know, if you, if you run a test or a quiz, whether they get it right. Um, some of the features we're building right now is to look at, you know, if, you're, if you're answering a quiz question in our platform, at what speed do you do it? So have you genuinely answered it through knowledge or have you gone off and Googled it and it's taken you 30 seconds longer than everyone else who answered it? So you, you can start to track those metrics. And once you've got that thing and you're capturing all of that data into a single place so that the trainer can the trainer can compare it week on week, session on session. You start to realize that actually something like training is very, very effective when it's delivered virtually rather than calling people into a room, getting them there, doing it like it's a school test. And I think that's really interesting because you're seeing like universities dealing with this challenge as well and saying, you know, are we virtual for the time being and we'll go back to normal? Or is this an act- actually a fundamental shift in our business model that where we're going to be hybrid, where we're going to have some students in class for some sessions, but a vast number of students all around the world potentially engaging with our content and being trained virtually. And suddenly the business model of universities and colleges changes. So I think yeah, I think when it comes to tr- training, that's actually one of the easiest things to reproduce online. And I would say most of our clients doing that have found it to, you know, to, to barely miss the step in terms of being able to do it that way. And were you delivering your product for training pre-COVID? Yeah, it was actually it was actually one of our focus markets pre-COVID. So, so we were we were very much in the corporate space. Usually, we're discovered by event planners. So, somebody whose job it is to run, say, a sales event or a marketing event, because they're the ones googling for event technology and that's where you'd normally find us but but what we quickly found was that once we were inside those companies there were other departments that were running essentially events but an event is a gathering of people it used to be a gathering of people in the same physical space now it's a gathering of people in the virtual space as well but to perform some kind of communication as a group and training really fell quite neatly into that so and and the the advantage of looking at things like training is that there's always budget for training you know events are the sort of thing which 
with COVID could, could get cut very quickly. Um, but you can't stop training your staff just because they're not coming into the office. Well, it's interesting because I, I, as we went virtual and the delivery for our business went virtual, we started, we looked around for tools we could use and we settled on Mural as a sort of whiteboarding post-it note collaboration tool. And then as in the summer, when clients started coming back to the farm, we found ourselves still using that tool. So there was, there was a tool that was just for virtual use. And then we found that not only did it save us thousands of post-it notes a week, but it, it actually captured it in a better way and even drove, you know, can drive clients to a decision point quicker than paper and pens can. And so we've carried, we've carried on using it even, even face-to-face. Do you have some tools in your tool bag, which are the same? Cause you went, you went sort of hybrid to virtual. And if you go back to hybrid, are there bits of your platform that you think people will bring with them into the classroom or into an event? Yeah. Well, I think the, 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 the point that we always made was that we, um, we were, uh, audience engagement and data gathering pre-COVID and we were doing that in a room so it was individuals watching a presentation but interacting with it asking questions taking part in polls and quizzes receiving the content in real time on their mobile devices the only difference was they could see and hear the presenter because they were in the same room as them once we moved virtual, it was simply a case of integrating a video platform to enable you to see and hear the presenter when you weren't in the same room as them but what that means is that when we go to a hybrid scenario, which we've kind of been expecting and then being pulled out of by yet another lockdown, but as we move towards that hybrid thing where some people will be in the room, the experience is exactly the same as it was before. You can still partic- participate. You can still ask questions. You can still answer polls. You can still interact. And, it, and, and what we're actually trying to do is blend the in-room and the virtual, but running all off of the same platform. So we're we're starting to drop the term hybrid, even though we were probably the first to use it in April when everyone else started talking about virtual. We were saying actually the end game on this is hybrid, because the term we're using now is blended. Because actually that it sounds you know that's what it will be. It will be you have some learners in the room, some virtual. You want to make sure it's a blended experience that you know those those individuals aren't going into two separate data sets. You're not having to then compare two lots of everything and mix them together because that just creates a headache. And, and when we get to hybrid, the last thing you want is a headache because it's you know, there's a bit of, bit more complexity there. And what do you uh, what do you think about this future blended world? You know, we'll end up with herd immunity at some point, either because everyone will have had it or everyone will have got vaccinated. So we'll get there at some point. My mother got vaccinated yesterday, so the world is making progress what are you going to be i guess you were physical in an office at the beginning and now you're all remote what where do you think it'll end up yeah we've we've had these discussions for for a few months actually i think since maybe even since july when we could start going back into the office um, and we found there's been a lot of benefits from going virtual um, I think people can be way more efficient. Um, those of us that had commutes of finding you know, the extra hours in the day, wonderful. Um, but at the same time, we're recognizing some of the challenges of being purely virtual, um, particularly around the, the, the HR elements, the, the people issues. You know, how, do you, how do you bring on board new employees really, really quickly and easily when you know, you're not in the same room and they can't just listen over your shoulder as you make a, a sales pitch and so on? So some of those, that natural osmosis of information that happens in the office it's much harder to recreate either a, a Slack channel. Um, so we're, we're very much advocating a hybrid or a blended 
office environment for our business when, when we can go back. And I think all of the staff are buying into that. Um, and I think a lot of companies will do the same. I think, I think there was a bit of a, a fear amongst large corporations that, that people would start working from home and productivity would decline. They found that it hasn't. It's gone the other way. And they want to retain that productivity while still keeping a sense of culture and community amongst their workforce. So I, I strongly suspect a lot of companies will, will build a, a hybrid office environment and I think hybrid events is just the natural progression of that, that people will still travel to events. They will want to go to the to the big conferences or the things that are really valuable to them, but that doesn't stop them from attending 10, 20, 30 conferences a year online where they're just looking to gather information or make a few key connections. Okay. And your offices are in London? Yes. Yep. We've got so offices you- in London and, and the US as well. So we're in, we're in New York and um, Portland as well. But actually, for, for, for America at the moment, we've actually sort of closed the offices and we're looking at a, a much more virtualized structure so that we can start hiring people all over the US rather than in those specific cities. Um, so that's Okay. Different. And so how are you going to solve? I mean, in that case, you're going to have to solve that HR problem forever. What what have you been doing? With, I mean, we've, we've as a business, we put a lot of emphasis on on mental health. We found that one of the first things to start that we could see challenges amongst our workforce was the way they were coping, not just with the pandemic, but how they were having to change in their working, um, not meeting people. And we just had, we, we created a really open discourse that would allow people to, to talk about that and create, we created, um, you know, mental health working groups and different groups of individuals from different teams to just talk to each other and, and talk about the stuff that was affecting them. So, so we jumped on it really early and said, look, if we, we've got to, we've got to look after that piece as much as anything for our employees now. Um, so that was kind of the, the change in what we did in terms of um, the focus of our, I guess, n- non-work efforts. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're, do, we're doing, we're doing all the things that you'd expect uh, a company that's virtualizing to do so we're we're now giving all all employees an allowance to go and get themselves decent chairs and decent microphones and decent wi-fi and all of those things that budget that we would have spent on the office you know kitting people out at home and and that would be for every new starter as well so that everyone feels like actually they're building that that setup that they can have confidence in and you know they're not sitting breaking their back on a terrible chair you laugh but that but for a lot of our, our younger members of staff they're in like four or five person house chairs in london where there is only one communal room and suddenly there was four of them trying to fight over that communal room and you saw staff literally sitting on the end of their beds with a laptop on their knees you know that's not good you know i'm i'm fortunate enough to have a spare room and and you know can can come and find a space to work in that's separate from the rest of my life but i couldn't imagine getting out of bed and just sitting on the end of it and trying to trying to work a day so so we started offering you know small office spaces near individuals houses where it was appropriate so that they would have their own space to get out to that didn't mean commuting into the office but would allow them to at least have have somewhere that they feel they could escape from all of their flatmates or their family and all of the noise so you and and, and sometimes that that has to be kind of an on an individual basis you've got to look at the situation somebody's in and go what's the right thing to do here and so it's kind of it's, it's been adapting we've been learning we've been listening to our staff and you know we we we, you know, we, we think ultimately it puts us in a much stronger position because it, it again it's just removing more overhead from the company which allows you to stay nimble flexible um and 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 work you know work with your staff to create a working environment that that works for them and so with your US operation and hiring, would you you'd hire somebody wherever they were in the world? Or do they have to be in the US? I, th- I think we're, I mean, we, 
we're we're definitely prioritizing the US. I think the time zone issue is, is is a major one. I think we've got to make sure we can support our clients out there. But it does mean that you're you're not necessarily confined to sort of the the New York area or the valley where wages tend to be and salaries tend to be higher. So you give yourself a little bit more flexibility in terms of the individuals that you, you can hire there. The the US guys were actually um those that felt like they benefited most about out of virtualization. So, so prior to prior to COVID, we had um, thirty people in the UK office and maybe uh, eight, nine, ten or so in the United States. Um, and we would do a team call every week with thirty people in the room, and you were kind of dialing in everyone else, and they felt very much like second class citizens. Suddenly, when everyone went onto a Zoom call, we were all an, an equally sized square on that grid view and everyone got their fair share and that finally the Americans could hear us clearly and we could all so so they actually felt dramatically improved the way they were able to communicate with us as a as a business that was primarily UK based. Uh, and so that's that's something, you know, a, a great outcome and we want to try and try and recreate that. But it does mean we're gonna we're gonna rather than allocating budget to offices, you know, buying by renting office space, the budget's all going into travel. You know, the expectation is if you're working if you're working apart most of the time that means once a month, once a quarter, you're bringing people together into a single location and really spending that time together valuably. valuably. So again, really similar to that kind of virtual and hybrid events concept where you still will come together because it's way better to come together, but you'll just do it less frequently, but really try and get the most out of it when you do. I, I know that I feel their pain. I spent most of my working life being the guy in the UK, the, the only remote dial into a US conference call. And, and, you know, about five minutes into the meeting, you knew everyone had forgotten you were actually at the end of the phone. Um, yeah, and, I, I'm the same, actually. I, I, my first company was an Australian one. So I remember, and I was 21, I remember doing a few conference calls from, you know, the, the, the toilets of a bar at about 11 o'clock at night. Because <laughs> that's when they schedule them. So, you know, we, we've all been there, the, the wrong end of that relationship. And it's nice, you know, sometimes it's nice to be the, the head office where you can kind of, kind of make a call on when, when, when everything's done. But do you think it's going to, you know, at the moment, you, your office space probably has some conference rooms. You know, I was talking to a CEO the other day and he said, look, uh, we think one remote, all remote. So in the future, we'll never have, you know, we'll probably never want to be in a position where eight people are in a conference room and one or two people have dialed in because it's such an awful experience. It's better with video, you know, but it's still better again for everybody. It's it's not as good for the eight people who are together to be remote, but in their office, they're thinking, well, we'll have to get rid of all the conference rooms and go to sort of one or two person cubicles so that so that the person, the, the remote person isn't disadvantaged. Yeah, absolutely. Because we, we've got we've got a, in the in London, we've got a, quite, a completely open plan office, which was which was fine pre-COVID because, you know, the developers had a fairly quiet area and most most demonstrations were taking place. In our clients' offices, we would go out into the city and, and, and take a laptop and, and pitch there. Um, now, we, we when we were going into the office in the summer, kind of between the lockdowns, let's call it, um, it we found you, you had six salespeople in there, and they're all trying to pitch together in an open plan office, and it was it was too noisy. So, so we, we are we are looking at you know, putting in booths so that we can kind of run that hybrid model in exactly the same way. Um, you mentioned video calls as well. I think we we, we we think the kind of multi-hub approach might might emerge, where you know there are you know where the London offices together, the Manchester people, the 
Sheffield, like you start to, you, you gather people into, into smaller office spaces where they feel more comfortable and then your video connecting them in as groups. So rather than them being like one core group and then a couple of people dialing in, you actually, you actually give people places to go to where they can, they can connect with a handful of their colleagues, um, but dial in as a group. What success have you, are you having running virtual events? So have people, what's the, what's the event that you've run virtually that a year ago you would have thought would have been impossible? I think the, the one that's um, probably got the, the clearest success um, was around, we've done, we've done quite a lot of charity events. So we partner with an organization that provides um, charity, I guess they're, it's um, live auctions. And, and prior to COVID, they were doing that in room and we partnered with them to deliver that virtually. Um, so they run off our platform, but then, but now you've got an audience of rather, rather than just being the, the sort of groups of individuals that, that attend and are maybe bidding in room for, for prizes and, and the money going to charity, you're suddenly opened up to a global audience of, of huge scale. Um, and we were working with a charity that you know, had targets, you know, typically would raise hundreds of thousands um, during a, uh, uh, a physical auction, uh, physical event auction. Um, I think they ended up raising about $6 million in a virtual event um, because the, the, the size of the audience was just that much larger and they could go so much wider. So you, you hear things like that and you're suddenly, well, okay, th- th- they're not going to change back in a hurry because that's just a huge difference in the, in the performance of that event. And so you've got a clear case there where, where you've got a virtual event kind of outgunning a physical event um, and, and stuff. And uh, as we sort of moved into virtual, a lot, a lot of the thinking was, can you try and recreate uh, a physical event? Can you recreate the success of a physical event? And, and now we're starting to think you shouldn't be trying to recreate something. You should be trying to create something different that's better um, or, or, or different and uh, addresses things in a different way. So it's, it's less about just, just trying to, move your physical event online and more about reformatting, redesigning it, doing things that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do because you've got a kind of a different media now. And that's, that's the way thinking's, thinking's moved, I think. And so what bits in the process are you involved in? So is it, if I'm, a, if I'm listening to this and we would normally have attended some events running our own events, do you help, do you help do the invitation or is it just, do you help people once you've got your audience engaging I think the the best way to think of us is the virtual venue um so what we we chose not to go into the kind of ticketing and the marketing of the event itself and the registration and and all of that because most event organizers already have that you know that process doesn't change just because the event itself has gone virtual you still need to market it online you still need a way of people buying tickets online the only difference is you used to distribute them a badge, like either they would send them a badge over email or you would say, come to the venue and pick it up and that will let you in. Now, now you, you kind of hand them off to us and, and we add them to our approved list and they're allowed into the, into the virtual venue. From then on, we're, we're hosting the video, we're hosting the presentations if there are any, we're adding in engagement elements, we are we're into, for, for training companies, we're integrating the CPD certifications. You automatically issue certificates of attendance to people that are participating. And we, we're running the event live effectively over to, to the point that it, it officially ends. Um, but then the, the great thing about virtual events is that the, you can kind of, you, you don't really need to close them. Whereas at a physical event, you have the venue booked for three days and when it's done, everyone's gone home and that's your event done until 
until the next time. With a virtual event, you've got the platform, you've got all of the materials, you've got all of the video that may have been recorded live but is now captured on demand. So you can effectively leave your event open in perpetuity for as long as you want, really, and kind of get a, a second group of attendees, a second group of leads or prospects to to arrive at that event and, and, and view it on demand. So we're also providing that kind of ongoing hosting of these events for, for anyone that kind of wants to leave them open and let people let people come in afterwards. Do you find that people get a better outcome if if it if they're sort of marketing a pseudo event every month versus watch it on demand? Is there a making it feel as though it's another event? Does that get a better response than just sort of dribbling yeah, I would, it through? I would all say the, time? the the dribbling it through is is kind of an added bonus. It's certainly not what makes the event. So what I talk about um, kind of the three non-negotiables of virtual events. And that's I've been talking about this since March. I've kind of made one of them negotiable. So there are now two. Um, and I'll explain my reasons why. So, so, the, so the first non-negotiable for me for, for a, a, a virtual or a hybrid event is that it has to be live. There has, there has to be something that's live. Um, otherwise, you're just creating content. And I know we're recording a podcast here, but the, the whole point of event is that you're, you're there. A group of people are there at the same time. Um, now, it used to be in the same physical space, but it's now in the same virtual space. The idea that there's a there's a gathering, because I think if you don't have that, you're not really creating an event. You're just creating a piece of content. So if everything is pre-recorded video, you may as well just put it on YouTube and call, you know, it's just content. Um, so I think the, the live element is what defines it being a virtual event rather than a piece of media. So to kind of that kind of answers your question about it being, you know, if you just leave it on there, then is that not as good? Yeah, that's not really the event. The event is the live component. The second piece that I think is non-negotiable is that it's got to be interactive. You've got to have the audience involved, participating, um, interacting with each other, interacting with the speakers and the panelists and so on. Um, Because I think those two things go hand in hand. If you don't get the audience involved, if you don't have them do something, there's absolutely no point in being live. They may as well have just gone to a piece of pre-recorded content. So for me, those two things are absolutely hand in hand. now, we're seeing a lot of clients pre-recording quite a lot of stuff, um, especially for large events, you know, when they want to reduce the complexity, they reduce the risks of Wi-Fi going down for presenters and all of those all of those things that happen. Yeah, so they, they pre-record a lot, but then we're seeing a lot of clients doing what's, what's kind of emerged as pseudo-live, which is you pre-record it, but then you play it at a certain point in the day as if it were live. So what that means is that if someone's half an hour late for your session, they join the video half an hour in, they don't just go, go in at zero, zero, like you would do in a YouTube video. So it creates a sense of be here now and participate because it's happening, even if the video happens to have been recorded two days before. And and the presenter's there to yeah, take exactly. the interaction, to do online chat, to do a Q&A. So even though their presentation might have been recorded, they're still Exactly, exactly. So, so you've, you've de-risked the, the most risky part, the live video, and the, but you're still creating that interaction and they might be you know, participating with the audience over the chat room or whatever. I've done a bit of public speaking before. And, you know, there's still sort of that adrenaline surge when you have to do something live as opposed to when you record it do you not in recording something like that i mean i know you de-risk it but don't you take away a bit of a bit of adrenaline and a a bit of emotion i think you can do but i think a lot of presenters particularly in a kind of corporate context are actually better when you remove that adrenaline some presenters are great when they're live and they're presenting their um 
deck or you know, their patter that they've honed down to perfection. And then as soon as they get into the Q&A session, they fall apart because they, they're thinking on their feet. But I find a lot of a lot of presenters in the corporate space are the complete opposites, particularly technical presenters. They're absolutely terrible. And you can see the fear in their faces when they're presenting the, the PowerPoint component and trying to stick to a script. And then as soon as they get to the audience Q&A, you see them visibly relax and they're hugely massively articulate and they answer the question and you can see that that's just the environment they feel more comfortable in and i don't think i think if you, if you want to communicate things correctly and the, again if you come back to the outcomes you're trying to make sure people are trained or sold to in the correct way i think you've you don't necessarily need to pile the pressure on the presenters the job is to communicate and, and it's whatever works best um yeah we're, we're seeing particularly in in virtual um heavily waiting towards q a rather than presentation slides because the Q&A is far more engaging in a virtual environment where you can't see people um, and it feels like you're really engaging the audience so we're, we're recommending to clients you know, if you were running an hour-long session of which 45 minutes was presentation with 15 minutes Q&A I say go 50-50 and really put that emphasis on the audience to help co-create that content in real time and you'll have a way more engaging experience so there's, there's a few things like that where we're, we're very much learning as we're doing more and more of these conferences and seeing what's working. And what was your third negotiable, non-negotiable? Yeah, the, this was the non-negotiable, but is now negotiable. Um, I, I said, I said, you have to have video on. And we, we, as soon as we went into lockdown, we said, put video on. We want to, sh- you know, we're not going to be seeing many people. We want to make sure there's faces on the end of the screen. Do not, um, didn't, you know, don't think you, you can kind of not bother getting dressed today. Um, we, we you know, want to be professional. We want to, we want to show kind of that human side to everything we're doing. But then we've seen things like Clubhouse emerge, you know, a really interesting app um, where it's all audio. We're obviously recording this as audio. I think, um, I think you know, if the content's good, it, you know, audio can work. Um, but I still think there is something nice, uh, something nice about seeing somebody at the other end of the screen, um, particularly if we're, we continue to be locked down. It's actually it's quite nice to see another face. You know. Don't see many of them at the moment. There are, there are days when I think um, I'd rather do a phone call because I've just got... I, it's just less mentally taxing to just talk to somebody on the phone, particularly if I know them. If certainly if it's if there's somebody new, definitely you know here we are doing we're we're video calling and recording just the audio. So, Clubhouse is it something that you're an active user of? I've got my first tomorrow, so probably probably very similar sort of talk like this, but using it for the first time tomorrow. So, but you know I've seen. People are interested in it. I'm, I'm always trying to keep on the pulse of things that are happening in around our industry. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a podcast listener myself. So I'm interested in how the t- kind of the media cross and how it's going to work. And the thing that I've always enjoyed about podcasts is that they can feel quite personal and they can feel like somebody's speaking directly to you. And certainly the places that I'm listening to them are you know, on the train or you know, as, I'm, as I'm going to sleep. And it feels like you're having that a very personal conversation Whereas something like the radio feels like the person is broadcasting to everybody and you're just one of many listeners. And I think Clubhouse is an interesting one because you know, where, does it, where is it going to sit between those two things? Is it going to feel more like radio or, or can you retain that kind of personal nature that podcasts seem to deliver? And that's, that's what I find, I'm trying to, trying to figure out, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting involved for the first time tomorrow. And so uh, I'm thinking who might your competitors be? And I guess... You could use Zoom. You could use Google Meet. You could use Teams. What? Where? Where does? Where does Glisser fit in? 
and why why go specialist in niche rather than a sort of technology you might be using for communication in general yeah that's 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 a really good question because this kind of the the covid has thrown all the dice in the air and they're all landing and everyone's trying to work out where they fit into this market and i think the most common driver bringing prospective clients to us is that they want to go beyond a zoom meeting or they want to do more than just another team session and so it's trying to create that sense of of difference and i think what we'll find is that because businesses corporations have have found enormous use cases for teams and zoom and they've got comfortable with them that those platforms will definitely take the core day-to-day communication within organizations where you know, they're absolutely functional and they they do the job and they're easy to use and they're being run by you know enormous organizations that, that can continue to innovate there i think at the same time lots of people within those businesses are trying to create events that go beyond that you know it's it's, we're talking to clients where they would, would normally have sponsors for their physical events and those sponsors would take booths and they would put logos everywhere and they would they would associate themselves with that that thing. It's really hard to do that with a Zoom call. You know, come try, come sponsor my Zoom call. It's, it's going to be, you know, because you've got to use them. So, so it's, it, it's where the dividing line is between something that has more of a sense of event about it that it's it's not a web conference it's an event it's a thing that you want to go to i mentioned earlier the kind of four r's for me it's reflecting your brand that reputation thing you know you want to create something online which is really representative of what you want to be it's, it's more if everyone else is running zoom calls or team calls what are we doing beyond that that makes us look better more innovative innovative more more interesting how am i going to make my audience way more engaged than they've ever been on a zoom call and i think it's it's parts of organizations that want to achieve that is where they're going to look at you know event technology and virtual event technology to go to go that one step further than what they're doing day in day out um and i think you know i think i think there's there's room for there's room for organizations in that space within events pre-covid there were there were lots of different sorts of events and the the biggest companies in the world the likes of salesforce and and hubspot and microsoft and apple their events were real showpieces for their brand and i don't think that changes as we move virtually they want to they want to outgun each other they want to do something bigger better more interesting and and i think that's where the event technology companies will will find their place well i was just thinking as you were talking about the sort of specialization and the niche i mean we're using a tool called squadcast because we could use zoom but we get better audio quality on squadcast so it's, it's about picking up the thing that's important to you which makes you move off yeah. a mainstream platform. Yeah, I think I think it's you know as virtual and and hybrid become normalised and as they as they become part of the fabric of organisations and not just a what I think for a lot of them might feel a bit like a sticky plaster at the moment whilst we go through COVID and we can't run any physical events. I think they're going to become normalised. I think that events will be largely hybrid in nature, where there will still be some physical component, but there'll be a wide audience viewing online. Um, then I think you'll see um, companies really investing in how they manage their their um, their virtual components of their events. So at the moment, most companies are kind of defaulting to um, the platforms that are available, but you'll, you'll probably see companies taking more ownership over this. You know, Most companies don't outsource their website. Most companies recognize that their website is integral to their brand and their proposition. It's now managed in-house the branding is exactly well how they want it it's completely bespoke and i think virtual events will just form 
a component part of websites, you know. Uh, okay, I see. And that's where you fit in because you give that the brand extension that Zoom could never, never match. Exactly. And a lot more flexibility around, you know, how you can change things, how you can customize things. If you, Most of our work is, is, is dealing with customization requests. It's like, can I have that there? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I think as people become more familiar with this, they're trying to push the boundaries of what they can do um, and bring it more in line with their own brands. And I think having having some flexibility about what we can deliver for our clients stands us apart from a, an off-the-shelf platform, which is you can do it this way and this is, this is the only way you can do it. And do you, do you get involved in the, the streaming element of a hybrid event? So until now, we've integrated 11 different streaming providers into the platform. So we, before COVID, we had three. We had YouTube, Vimeo, and Zoom. Um, and then... COVID came and suddenly there were requests for another platform and hey we use this one can we integrate that so we started off by integrating on a client by client basis and ended up with 11 um, about six months ago we realized that was not really sustainable so we, we went about building our own integrated platform to provide the streaming within within our product and that is in final stages of testing i'm hoping to release that next weekend um which has been designed specifically for the events industry and some of the things that we know event planners are trying to achieve from their video components um and trying to optimize it for that so so we'll, we'll continue to offer the integrations with off-the-shelf providers but we'll have our own for for our clients that want to use that and what, do you, what are you thinking about how pricing might work for events? Because lots of people in the past would have said, I'm not going to stream it because then people won't come and people won't, pay, people won't pay the same price for the streamed version if it's the same price as the physical event. But has that turned on its head? Is that- so I, I always point to um, Premier League football as the best analogy here. So I'm a, I'm a Liverpool fan. Coming from Kent, obviously, I have to support it. <laughs> um, and I love going to the game, but I, I can't get to Anfield when we could for every game in the season. But you, the, the best experience was physically there. Um, the sights, the sounds, the enjoyment, the atmosphere, and all of those things. And, 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 and it was be- it's better than watching it on TV. But I'm happy to pay for a Sky Sports subscription to watch every game. Plus, I get all of the pre-match build-up. I get all of the interviews. I get the replays. I get the post-match analysis and all of those good things. So I look at events and say, that's the model, which, you know, Premier League football is just an event. There's a physical event, which is the game itself. And then there's a virtual event, which is the streaming service that Sky Sports provide and everything that goes around it. And events have to look at it in a similar way. You, you still will attend a handful of events and pay a premium price to be there physically. Um, but around your, the content areas that interest you, you also happily start paying for subscriptions to access additional content and other virtual events. And I think that's the model that we'll, we'll move to um, you know, over the next few years. It's it's interesting that because I was I immediately thought of Formula One and I went to Silverstone a few years ago and thought God this is so much better on TV. Um, <laughs> whereas I'm with, whereas I'm with you with football and rugby, you know I'd watch it. Uh, I'd rather go live or maybe not even watch it if I can't if I can't if I can't go live. Well, yeah, and I think I think that's it's about looking at them as two different things and, and, and not looking at one as the, the poor relation of the other. So, so as I said earlier, I think if you're physically there, you get that serendipity and that networking and that, that atmosphere that comes from going to an event. And, and let's, let's not hide the fact you also get to travel somewhere that's often quite an exotic location and get a few nights in a hotel and 
so you get that and that's the same you know the football it's about the the atmosphere and the build-up and the in the pubs beforehand and so on and, and i think it's that's it's that's the thing and that in my mind is 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 a great experience but like you say, once you're watching it on TV, you don't get that. But you do get things like the replays. You do get the analysis. And I think the analogy is there for the events industry to say, you've got a virtual audience. Don't sort of assume they're second-class citizens because they can't do that physical networking thing. Actually provide them with extra value. Why don't you do a post-match or you know, post-presentation um, interview with the speaker? just for the virtual audience why don't you do a separate q a session which is entirely for the virtual audience and that only they're participating in so you're starting to add value for that group of people that's separate and different from the value you're trying to add for the physical group yeah, so, okay and, then that you, way you're and, not, and, and, and if you're live you could always watch the replay of that yeah yeah, and so it's, yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's so many people have, have looked, and, and, and the reason that the virtual events struggled pre-COVID was this kind of um, cannibalization fear that if I do anything there, then how am I going to get the people through the door because they're the ones that are keeping my event alive? But I think we've seen that there isn't necessarily that happening. And actually, rather than looking at it as two things that are competing with each other, think of it that you've, you've got a physical event and how do you enhance it? How do you do more? How do you add an audience that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to access by adding in a virtual component. And if you see it as you know, two parts that together are, are much stronger than one on their own, then, then you stop worrying about the cannibalization issue. Okay. So that's something you now know that you didn't know before. What, what, if you think about your I get, life or career, what is it, Mike, that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Uh, for career, I, th- I think I should have learned coding myself uh, <laughs> i think um i think one of the you know w- w- when i when i was at uni um you know it wasn't it wasn't such a big deal um but um it felt like it always feels like something that you're, you're too late to start and now i'm in my 40s i'm kind of worried that maybe i am now too late to start um but i you know maybe if my kids pick it up i'll probably try and teach myself but i think there's something invaluable to learning it whatever whatever career path you take, if you understand the basics of it, it's just going to be so important for everything going forward. And I think um, um, I've kind of had to learn how to speak to developers and understand what they're trying to achieve and the challenges around a product um, coming from kind of a business and marketing background. And I think if I'd had that, just some some basic um, training around that area would have just stood me in good stead. So anyone who's uh, younger than me, so 30s or 40s, definitely, um, without doubt, there's, there's no time to, to lose. Um, and have you read any business books or do you look elsewhere for inspiration to build your business and help you solve problems? What, what should pe- Where should people go that you found useful? Yeah, I'm, I'm not one for reading a lot of business books. I find that, you know, I'm working pretty long days. Um, and so when I'm, when I step away from my laptop, I'm, I'm trying to relax often rather than thinking about business. But I, I kind of, uh, part of my working day is constantly keeping an eye on the various blogs and things that I follow that I think are interesting. The person, the individual person I, I always go back to is uh, Jason Lemkin. He writes a lot around the SaaS industry, um, lots of really, really useful thoughts about building your SaaS business at each stage. You know, and as as I've gone through kind of five years of building this business, gradually growing it, I've seen that his writing has always been available and always useful through each of those stages. So I'm constantly, constantly reading his blogs. And what what's the title of his blog? Remember off the top of your head or? 
Um, so he runs an event called Sasta. Um, S A S T A, and then and then he's you basically can follow him on LinkedIn. But a lot of the content's coming out of Sasta. Um, I think it's just it's just invaluable. Uh, there's always something useful there. My um, I get I get a daily alert from him, and inevitably it gets forwarded on to somebody in my team, and they're kind of like, oh, <laughs> this again. So I, th- I think I th- yeah, I think they've all subscribed themselves now, just so that they can preempt whatever whatever idea I'm going to have from reading one of his emails. But I think I think that's it. I kind of just kind of drip feed through the day useful things, and 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 sometimes it can be anything like seeing what seeing what a competitor's doing or what they're writing about, and and that can inspire some ideas. So. I like to just kind of little and often when when I've when I've got some downtime, um, try and read some some books that are less less about business. And have you got some other blogs or podcasts you follow around uh, culture? Um, there's, there's quite a lot of HR tech companies that focus a lot on this, and I think um, I think they're they're writing a lot about that. I wouldn't say there's one in particular that sort of stands out. Again, it's just that constant drip feed. I'm subscribed to so many things that. That it's I see something and I think that's relevant and and, and pass it on. Um, we are we're sort of working with some groups um, within our industry to try and keep that focus on culture at all times and and um, there's one in particular called Event Well that we're supporting. So that's about um, mental health and well-being in the events industry. Um, and so that that's we're kind of working with them to develop what our thinking is. And I think that's really important. Before COVID, there was always this um, this stat which appeared every year, which said that event planners had the fifth most stressful job in the world. And it was kind of after the three um, three emergency services and the armed forces, and then you had event planners. <laughs> and, and every year it, it came out. I, I often thought they might get to fourth place at one point. But um, so, so kind of mental health within the events industry has always been something that people have been talking about. And we're kind of, we're we're seeing that's even more relevant now. We're working working from home and having to support each other. So, so we're more about kind of working with them to come up with with things. Mike, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time today. No worries. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.